I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about whatever I want to. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend Ajoma Aluo's new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America, and respond to a question about women in ministry by sort of flipping the script and reflecting on the problem of men in ministry. So I'm standing here in my office recording this episode, looking out on a mostly sunny day and uh, looking out over the most beautiful view on this campus. I may have said before, I've got a great office overlooking the lake that is in the middle of our campus. And uh, I get to watch uh, the swans that sort of uh, happen to reside right outside my window here. And uh, families of Canadian geese and all of their chicks that at least one family has hatched. Canadian geese are not particularly attractive, but uh, doggone, their chicks are really cute. Uh, anyway, the Cubs have had a decent week. They dropped a few games to the Indians and they took two out of three from the Tigers. And uh, I'm, with regard to the Cubs, I'm trying to embrace radical acceptance. I can't do anything about reality. Can't do anything about the fact that it's going to be a fairly mediocre campaign in 2021. Uh, but you know, it's spring and summer's around the corner and there's a long stretch of baseball to go. And uh, I'm just resolved to enjoy every bit of it and, uh, you know, vent my rage at the television screen every time the Cubs leave runners on base, when they leave runners in scoring position, which they seem to be doing with uh, far too uh, far too frequently. It's driving me bananas. But that's all part of the enjoyment. Uh, this last week, I've uh, been listening to loads of U2. I have uh, very inconsistent sort of musical patterns, probably a lot of people do. Uh, but there are several bands that I always return to, uh, sort of capturing the sound of my high school years or uh, my high school years, which were very formative musically, uh, were shaped and dominated mostly by uh, the Smiths. So I go back every once in a while and get into a big Smiths groove and uh, New Order. And um, I don't really return to them frequently, or I should say there's not like an on off pattern with them. I've got my New Order playlist and that's what I uh, will do administrative work to. I'll often write to my New Order playlist, so they're always on. And uh, I'll go six, eight, ten months without listening to any U2 at all, but then I will revisit U2, and that's like all that I'll play. And the occasion for that was uh, several days ago, Tim Stafford emailed me and said, hey man, let's do a couple episodes uh, for supporters of the Vox podcast that he does with Mike Erie. And uh, let's discuss U2 and theology, which Tim and I have kicked around quite a bit, and which I tend to kick around with uh, uh, a handful of friends. And this last uh, this last week, I had sort of an, oh, there goes the muskrat. 
he's back. That's good to see. Anyway, this last week I had an emergency road trip that I had to take, uh, unexpected road trip, not really an emergency, but my daughter uh, is moving down from Marquette, which is in on the northern uh, side of the Upper Peninsula. If you are unaware of Michigan geography, you should check it out. Michigan is an absolutely gorgeous state. And uh, my daughter is moving uh, from Marquette to uh, a place which is sort of still unknown. But she needed some help. So I drove up there this week and uh, drove back, which was about 12 or 13 hours in the car, which for me is pure delight. Um, just a sense of escape. And I love just enjoying the beauty of Michigan. Uh, approaching the Mackinac Bridge and the beauty of the Straits of Mackinac and just the awe of that whole scene. And then um, the totally unusual and utterly unique geography of the Upper Peninsula. I mean, it's just like a completely different place. It's so wild and bizarre and um, just rugged beauty. And uh, uh, from the bridge to Marquette is several hours and you go through a bunch of ghost towns, uh, a lot of abandoned houses, abandoned resorts, and uh, it's just kind of eerie, but also sort of cool. Uh, the remnants of capitalism, which uh, you know has its dynamic of extraction for profit and uh, devastation and rape and plunder of the environment, and uh, before roving capital just moves on to something else uh to extract but anyway i had all that time in the car so i uh just listened to and i didn't listen to random u2 songs which i i tended not to i listened to several whole albums which uh is i i i kind of think that that that's how you have to listen to a great band like that because i know that they very intentionally uh put albums together to sort of hold together thematically and it was really cool. And I was really struck anew um, by kind of going through some of the albums that they put out in the 90s. And <clears throat> in the 1990s, U2 put out three albums. Um, they put out Octung Baby at the beginning of the 90s. Uh, and then they came out with this uh, sort of hastily thrown together album, Zuropa, and finally Pop. And Octung Baby, uh, those three albums sort of kind of focus on just this, this moment of modernity. And uh, in order to expose it, uh, they took a different tack than they, than they took in the 80s, which was a period of like serious um, piety and um, earnestness. And there's great value to those, to that music. Um, you know, Joshua Tree was sort of meant to call out um, the excesses of Reaganism to some extent, uh, questioned American foreign policy and the violence and devastation uh, visited uh, in South American countries. And, but the, but the posture of the band at that time was, was sort of earnest and pious. And in the 90s, they, they completely switched gears. They flipped the script dramatically and sort of engaged their message from a place of, well, they sort of added some layers and uh, sort of um, grabbed hold of modernism and modern culture 
and really kind of as it was morphing into postmodernism and just jacked it up to a thousand, put it on steroids and uh, sort of lived it. And um, the result of that was Octoon Baby, which is you know, Rolling Stone uh, ranked as the number one rock album of all time, which I'm sure that that's fodder for loads of arguments. Um, but this, it's such an over-the-top album, and it, it's just awesome. It's powerful. It was fun to listen to. you. And then uh, I didn't listen to the whole of Zuropa. Uh, Zuropa's got some kind of, I don't know, forgettable songs, but it's got one of my absolute favorite songs on there, uh, The Wanderer, which U2 plays and Johnny Cash sings. And of course he does. He has to sing that song. It is, it, it's just a masterful piece. I, I love so much about that. Look forward to talking with Stafford about it. Um, and then their third album, I listen to completely, which I will do quite often. I it's it's one of my favorite al uh, albums, and it's it's not entirely accessible. It's um, which is to say, when you two put it out, I think they felt that they put it out too soon. It wasn't um, produced enough, and um, in my opinion, I think the band tends to overproduce some of their work. And I, there's something raw about pop that I absolutely love. And there's a sense in which as the arc of those three albums throughout the 90s goes, there's this kind of super optimistic, we're going to just live the rock and roll lifestyle. We're going to completely embrace modern and postmodern culture and all of its hope and promise in Octoon Baby. And then... Um, their album trajectory kind of follows the natural trajectory of modernism, life in these liberal democracies in the West and in the, in the grip of capitalism, which inevitably leads to despair. And pop is a dark album. Um, but it is, it, it's such a profoundly um, Christian album because it's, it's honest and it's, um, it sort of speaks the truth about the character of the despair that um, the optimism of modernism leaves us with and the brokenness and the sense of loss and alienation and the appropriate uh, biblical response to that, to all of that is lament and grief. And that is what is sounded on that album. It's got one of the most powerful uh, lament songs uh, at the end, wake up dead man, which is really their exposition of Psalm 43. Uh, the band had been um, sort of using uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, translation or his rendering, uh, the message uh, on their tour, and had uh, really been affected by that profoundly. Interestingly, they developed a little bit of a relationship with Eugene Peterson, which is just really cool. Uh, he, he went to one of their concerts and you know was baffled by what they were all about. Um, but anyway, uh, wake up dead man is an exposition or a sort of, um, a performance of Eugene Peterson's rendering of Psalm 43, where the psalmist cries out to God, like, where are you? Rouse yourself, wake up. Um, and so their kind of, um, translation of that was wake up dead man. And it's just a powerful, powerful song. And, uh, earlier in that, uh, on the song Mofo, there's um, 
you know, Bono talks about how he's trying to find the baby Jesus under the trash and sort of digging around and trying to find a way and trying to find a way home to himself in the middle of all that was going on in that time. But the album closes with that lament and it's a dark album, which is, um, which is so interesting because the very next album, I mean, really in the, in the discography of U2, Wake Up Dead Man is followed by Beautiful Day, which is just so cool because the next album that uh, U2 put out was All That You Can't Leave Behind, which uh, is one of the most carefully structured and, and interestingly structured albums that U2 did um and look forward to talking with tim more about that by the way tim i'm talking about this now to turn up the heat on you we got let's do it let's, let's make this happen um but anyway it's just so interesting that in sort of the thought world of you two in their imagination um it's it's an appropriate response to lament the condition of the world but it's also an appropriate christian response to celebrate what's good and uh, after sort of trying to find the baby Jesus under all the trash on pop, what is so interesting, um, you know, with sort of life being covered and smothered and devastated and ruined by all that has happened in this modern world, the very next lyrics from the first song of All That You Can't Leave Behind, which the first song is Beautiful Day, um, celebrate the relentlessness of life the heart is a bloom shoots up through the stony ground there's no room no space for you in this town you're out of luck and the reason that you had to care the traffic is stuck you can't it's not moving anywhere you thought you found a friend to take you out of this place someone you can lend a hand in the turn for grace it's a beautiful day sky falls you feel like it's a beautiful day don't let it get away just love that i just i absolutely love that uh the celebration of the relentlessness of life even though it's so um our lives are like this our communities are like this so covered in trash and violence and injustice but that's it's inappropriate to only note all of that it's completely appropriate to celebrate um, all that is good about God's good world and all that is good in us and all that is good among us. And um, anyway, I know that on this podcast, I make a lot of critical observations and comments. All I'm trying to do is just share honestly about how I see the world and process really for myself in order to maintain my own sanity, um, how I see the world. But I'm always reminding myself that um, there's there's far more that's true about the world than anything that we're saying about it right now. And, um, you know, as um, James Baldwin said, oh, I'm going to get the quote wrong. There's, um, well, I won't even bother. Something about how American history is far more brutal and corrupt and devastating and beautiful and wonderful than anything that anyone has ever said about it, which is how an artist would talk about reality. And James Baldwin was certainly that. And um, so is you too. So I appreciate that. 
I always try to remind myself of the beauty of God's good world, but then that should never sort of fall over into sentimentality, uh, which is sentimentality dominates the culture that I inherited of white conservative evangelicalism, and it dominates American culture, where we feel that um, you know if people mean well, then let's not be critical, and um, you know we should be nice and polite, and uh, but that's not the character of truth. And of course, uh, that album, All That You Can't Leave Behind, is bookended. It begins with Beautiful Day, but it's bookended by the song Grace, which I can never sing. I mean, you know, when I'm in the car, I'm singing at the top of my lungs, and I can never quite uh, make it all the way through that song without just breaking, you know, my voice cracks. I can't get all the words out. It's so, it's just moving. It's such a beautiful song. Um, but the beauty, recognizing the beauty of this world is not sentimentality, it's grace. And that's a radical, radical difference. I've talked before about how uh, scripture is brutally honest. It reveals the truth about this world. And sentimentality is the enemy of truth because sentimentality is just sort of about surface emotion and sort of means well and wants to be nice and doesn't want to get at some of the uglinesses that we do need to talk about. So anyway, I've got uh, a couple of long drives that I've got to be taking in the next day or two, and um, U2 is going to be on. And I can't wait to get back to uh, No Line no line on the Horizon, which uh, uh, equally brilliant and beautiful uh, to all that you can't leave behind. So Tim, let's get this going, man. Let's make a plan and kick around some U2 and theology because there is loads to talk about. So I know I mentioned this a while back, but I've been doing some more thinking about it. The whole notion of deconstructing or deconstruction. Um, Christians talk about this. Usually evangelical Christians will talk about how their faith is deconstructing or they are deconstructing their faith or deconstructing uh, their previous understandings. And um, I had a conversation this last week with a friend uh, who indicated that she's going through uh, this period of deconstruction or you know, her faith is deconstructing. And uh, she wanted to, to talk about that, and um, which is great, which is totally fair. Um, and I'm happy to do that. But uh, I just, I couldn't get this out of my head on my morning walks. I was just thinking about, you know, picking up this notion of deconstruction and sort of turning it over a little bit in my mind. And um, there's something about the whole notion that doesn't quite sit well with me, but can possibly be well understood, or, or it could possibly be a window, I think, to some insight. And I, I think that the, the basis of my concern or my discomfort with that notion is it just seems to me to be so evangelical. Like evangelicals are the ones that came up with this term or, or people that would consider themselves ex-evangelicals. Um, and there, there seems to be something that is so, that's such an evangelical move. And, um, the reason I say that is because it seems to me that in some sense, uh, that notion or, or, or just to re sort of refer to this term deconstruction can become a cliche. And, uh, one of the things I've tried to do over the last several decades is just have a finely honed cliche dar. And I 
commend that to anybody else as well. Um, I just, I hate cliches. I cannot stand them. I do everything that I can to not use them. I avoid them. Um, and there's a, I think there's good reason for that. Um, cliches. Well, I, I would start by saying this. I really love language. I love taking great care with language. Um, because the realities of the kingdom of God, um, I mean, I, I believe that they're real and I'm compelled by the power and the beauty of the Christian gospel by which I'm talking about you know, the whole thing, the whole work of God and Christ in the world to bring into being the kingdom of God. And, um, you know, being Christian is enjoying the life-giving reign of the Lord Jesus. And that reality is available to us in a number of ways. It's available through practices. We, we experience it. We, we reconcile with people. We confess our sins. We are forgiven or we forgive others. Um, and we reconcile, we embrace, we serve and we love. We are served and we are loved. All of those are uh, constituent practices of the kingdom of God. And there are many more. Um, so that reality can be experienced. Uh, it could also be portrayed. And varieties of artists do this so well. It can be visually portrayed. I have no capacity for that at all. I can enjoy the the visual art of others, but um, I can't do it myself. And um, but in loads of ways, visual artists can portray to us what the kingdom of God is like, what what these realities are like. And I very much appreciate that. But for me, language um, is most valuable. This is what I work with. I teach. I use words. You know, most of the days when I'm discussing things with others. I write, I reflect, and um, I work with um, biblical texts, which are made up of language. And language is one of these vehicles for um, that has the potential to sort of capture the reality of the kingdom of God. Language can sort of, if we, if we have skillful and faithful uh, language, we can penetrate into this reality and understand it more and sort of draw nearer to it or enter more fully into it. And with the skillful use of language, we can sort of kind of pull this reality down on top of us so that it it consumes us and we can kind of try on and feel out its life-giving contours. And I'm always trying to find fresh language to describe this whole thing. Someone someone said this, um, I read this, I don't know, 25 years ago or so. I heard someone say that if you can describe any kind of uh, reality in two different ways, then you have a good understanding of it. And I just was so compelled by that. I just, I, I always have tried to talk about any kind of a notion with different language um, as a way of sort of moving around the object, this redemptive reality. And describing it from different perspectives to have a to kind of get my head around it more fully. And so to enjoy it more fully and to experience it more effectively. So I'm always working with language. And of course, um, I've discovered that I've said this before, evangelicals, evangelicalism is a culture that is sort of filled with the vocabulary of the Bible, but has never quite gotten to grip. Uh, to grips with the grammar of the Bible. 
evangelicals use a lot of gospel talk, a lot of gospel vocabulary, but they don't understand the gospel grammar. And that's what's profoundly um, oppressive. That's why evangelicalism, for all of its Bible talk on the surface, actually has a cultural dynamic that is not life-giving. And um, I think that one of the reasons for that is, as I was saying in a previous episode, evangelicals over the last century and more, evangelicals are people that are that don't exist really in the mainline denominations and have been cut off for a variety of reasons and a variety, in a variety of ways from the great tradition, the great Christian tradition, where there is a reservoir, a massive reservoir of wisdom and uh, spiritual insight and um, a massive reservoir of language in liturgies and in prayers and in ways of thinking about and talking about the faith and God and being alive in this world and being Christian in this world. And because evangelicals have, have kind of cut themselves off from all of those resources, thinking that we're going to, you know, we're going to do it right. We're going to invent this thing out of whole cloth and um, do our own thing, cut loose from these stultifying institutions and just have fresh experiences of God without having to deal with institutional, you know, oppressive structures. I totally get that impulse, but... Uh, and I understand the reasons why evangelicals left uh, denominations over the last uh, couple hundred years, but certainly over the last century. And uh, evangelicalism is largely like a non-denominational culture. But one of the unintended uh, consequences of that is that we just, we are kind of set loose. Um, you know, we're cut off from the wisdom of the great tradition, from the reservoirs of, you know, linguistic skillfulness where there is Bible vocabulary and Christian vocabulary and Christian grammar, like the rules for how the words fit. Um, that's what's important because it's the grammar of the gospel that is the logic of the gospel. So you can actually have a lot of gospel vocabulary, but not have gospel grammar. Anyway, one of the one intent, unintended consequences of all of that is that um, evangelicalism as a culture uh, exists with its own language. It, it's it's not that it um, has no language to talk about the faith. It does have a language, but its language is not shaped by scripture, by the scriptural grammar. Its language is not shaped by wisdom, by um, by truth speaking. It's largely shaped by sentiment. It's largely shaped by kind of like a um, aspirational hopefulness and sentimentality. And by sentimentality, I mean just sort of pure emotion for emotion's own sake, um, with a high degree of resistance, like an allergy to really grappling with the dark aspects, the mysterious aspects of, uh, of our experience, because we want, we want clarity. And um, the language set that dominates evangelicalism as a culture is mostly made up of cliches. Because there's this impulse among evangelicals to always be boiling everything down to its lowest common denominator. Like, just give me this in a soundbite. You know, boil this down to a bumper sticker. Boil this down to a cliche. Um, eliminate all the complexities of relationships and just give me uh, something that can fit in one sentence. 
And the result of that is just a proliferation, my mouth is dry, a proliferation of cliches. And um, there are just loads of these. There was this one that popped up, I don't know, maybe a 15 years ago or so. I had never heard it before, um, but when we uh, returned to the States back in 2004 and were sort of once again inhabiting an evangelical, uh, an American conservative white evangelical context, man, I heard just cliches everywhere. And there was this one that would always pop up. People would say, you know, they'd be relaying uh, an event that happened that was serendipitous, like something happened to me really cool today. Uh, it was a total God thing. And I, I would hear this, people saying, oh, there's a total God thing. And I, I was trying to get my head around, like, what, is, what does that even mean? Um, and at any rate, what that was signaling was a situation that turned out to their liking. I was frustrated. I couldn't, you know, X, Y, Z obstacles. I was in this sort of position of frustration. And then something happened. Oh, total God thing. Because what does God do in the world? He is this uh, sort of overseer of my personal narrative to make sure that I don't get stuck in any cul-de-sacs um, or uncomfortable moments. And when I'm kind of relieved, that's a total God thing. Um, there's so much that is just awful about that. But that expression, and there are just thousands that evangelicals have come up with over the years, that expression functions as a cliche. That is to say, it's, it's, um, it's an expression, a verbal expression, that um, is shared among a culture so that when it is spoken, everybody knows what we mean. But yet we don't quite know what we mean. And nobody sort of examines the underlying grammar of that expression. Like, what's the logic underneath that? So, I'm always, out on, I'm always on the lookout for cliches because I want to know, does my language, does the language that I use draw me into the life-giving reality of the Christian gospel? Or does it sort of obfuscate? Um, does it make me bump up against the borders of the Christian gospel, but not allow me to penetrate into it to really draw life from it? And, uh, you know, the language of the New Testament is language that delivers us into that reality effectively. Um, but the cliche-oriented language of evangelicalism it sort of functions as a prophylactic. It's like a massive condom preventing our, um, you know, actually experiencing the stuff of life. The thought world or the language world of evangelicalism and its cliches are in so many ways. Um, I, I was thinking about this this morning. It just sounds so blunt and unkind and dismissive, but I mean these, I mean these terms in uh, I mean them exactly. The cliche-oriented language in, in evangelicalism is just dumb. It's blunt. It doesn't deliver uh, that language set. It's stupid in that it's unlearned. It's untaught. It's undisciplined. And I'm not trying to be elitist here. Um, I'm, I'm trying to understand how it is that a culture so committed to the Bible does not understand the Bible. 
how a culture so committed to the language of the Bible does not under it, uh, has a good grip on its vocabulary, but doesn't understand the grammar. It's like somebody you know using French vocabulary with German grammar, and the result is just gibberish. Anyway, that's uh, I'm digressing here quite a bit, but I wonder if it's the case that the term deconstruction is sort of functioning as a cliche. That is, when someone says it, we all know what they mean because we sort of are, we, we inhabit a culture of agreement, but we don't quite know what we mean. That is, it's, a, it's something that is unexamined. It's a dynamic that we're referring to, but we're not exactly um, discerning what the underlying dynamics actually are. And I'm not exactly sure that I, I've got that figured out because I think that for every person, it's going to be different. Everybody has a unique story. Everyone's experience of evangelical culture and of either abusive uh, communities or just communities that are um, sort of stultifying, everyone's experience is going to be different. I think that I would just, I, I, um, I'm just always trying to find better language for that process. And part of why I, I want to examine it is because um, I'm not totally convinced that that's the best expression for what uh, for what might be happening. At the same time, it, it kind of could be. Um, I guess what I'd want to say, though, is that I would not think of deconstruction as something that is happening and that will come to an end. Like, uh, I, I, I had this kind of firmly founded young faith, um, real zeal in this, this community or whatever. I was a true believer. Um, but I had these experiences and now everything is deconstructing or I'm deconstructing as if, um, this is a period that was caused by something and, uh, caused by some unfortunate experiences and it's going to come to an end at some point soon. And then I will be able to embark on a different activity like constructing or constructing something new. Um, and I'm not sure that that's the best way to say things. I'm not sure that that's the best way to envision things because there's a sense in which deconstruction should be this sort of like abiding reality, like a continuing reality. Um, I mean, I've come to see personally that so much that I did inherit from my evangelical culture always delivered through, I mean, in my experience, well, not always, but um, to a large extent delivered into my life through wonderful people that did mean well. But so much of what I uh, received distorted my imagination in such a way that I was not able to actually understand Scripture as clearly as I do now and as, and as clearly as I hope to do. And... Um, this was a while back when I did some real reflection on Jesus's really striking conversation with Nicodemus. I mean, Nicodemus uh, knew his Bible a thousand times better than I'll ever know mine. And, uh, you know, lived day in, day out among the people of God, crying out for God's salvation. 
passionately in occupied territory. Um, so thinking the best about Nicodemus and Jesus tells him, you need to be born again. Like, um, you need to completely start over. You need to tear it all down because you don't know anything and begin anew. You need to be reborn from your mother. And, um, you know, Nicodemus, Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and they're working with a metaphor for starting over. And I began to realize um, this has got to be like a daily assumption that I'm just constantly sort of tearing down everything that I thought I knew and always making this restart and just to hold everything so loosely and always be open to fresh light and fresh understandings which will be delivered into my life from unexpected sources, from, from people who are students at the seminary, uh, from people who are not Christian, but who ask good questions, um, from any and every source. And so any and every person is, uh, is a gift in my life, aiding my growth and my understanding. Um, but there's a sense in which so much of being Christian, at least for Paul, is about almost like a permanent condition of deconstruction. And because we so, as, as humans, we kind of build back up always sort of naturally um, this illusion that we understand things and we build back up uh, self-protective uh, mechanisms and relational strategies and all that kind of thing. Um, deconstruction is sort of like a process that always has to be active in our lives. It's not um, sort of a season it is what it means to be Christian. So anyway, um, we back in the day, this is decades ago, we used to talk about having a crisis of faith. And I think that that's in some ways what uh, that language deconstruction is meant to capture. Um, again, I think my worry is that it becomes a cliche. That is, it becomes language that seems to signal something, but doesn't actually signal anything. Um, or, or I should say, we don't actually understand the fullness of the reality that it signals as well as we pop possibly could. So um, anyway, those are just some thoughts on deconstruction. Um, I'm still not fully satisfied with where I've arrived. And I think that it's, um, I mean, I love getting hit with sort of new thoughts from odd angles because it just drives me to sort of turn them over and shake them you know, and smell it and hit it, you know, and toss water on it. See what happens. What is this? Is it a fruitful notion? Is it not? I have no idea. Anyway, my cliche dar went off when I heard it and when I have heard it. And there's something that uh, I'm unsettled by, but I do wonder if the language can be harnessed for good. I'm not sure. So I was emailing back and forth over the last week or so with Austin about a conversation that has really bothered me over the last couple of years, and that is uh, proposed rule changes in baseball. And, um, you know, baseball's kind of fallen into a rut in, in a sense. There's uh, these sort of three true outcomes, there's strikeout, walk, or home run. And um, <clears throat> the game is kind of bogged down in a sense. Anyway, there's a bunch of a handful of complaints 
about the current state of baseball. Uh, people are upset that the game is too slow. It takes too long. And um, there's not enough sort of action on the bases. And so we, we've got to change things up. We have to speed up the pace of play. Um, you know, considering moving the mound back all in an effort to make the game more exciting and more appealing to uh, modern people and to youth. So the game doesn't, you know, has sort of an insured future. Um, and I have to say that these discussions have just always bothered me uh, because there's nothing wrong with baseball. Don't change the game. And I don't like it that, um, I mean, there are, there are sports folks who will complain about baseball because in football, every, every off season, there are rule changes. And um, in order to you know, protect you know, offensive players uh, for whatever, they change the rules. And in basketball, uh, there's been uh, rule changes with regard to defenses and that sort of thing in order to make the game a more appealing product. But I just, I don't like hearing these discussions when it comes to baseball at all. And it's not simply because I'm like a baseball purist or something like that. I just don't like it. Um, I, I don't like the underlying assumption that there's something wrong with the game that has to change because it's not as appealing as it could be. I think that is so entirely misguided. Um, you know, there are people that will talk about how the game takes too long make these certain changes, the game will, you know, the average game will last like seven minutes shorter, which I think is just completely misguided and ridiculous. Like who out there in America is thinking, you know what, I would actually be a baseball fan. I'm not interested in the game right now, but I would if the games took seven minutes shorter. Crazy, ridiculous. No one, no one is thinking that. You like the game or you don't. And there are no avid baseball fans or committed baseball uh, fans um, who sort of watch more than a couple games a week. And this is one of the beauties of baseball is you can sort of, you know, the game takes a while and, you know, you can get up and get a drink or get a refill, or get a snack and sort of catch up on the action as the game goes along. You might miss a play or miss something exciting. Um but there's some particular beauties about baseball that should not be ruined. Um, and there's, there's something about baseball actually that is, that is really unique. It's not just the game itself. I mean, there are, there are some particular uh, aspects of the game that I think are, are really interesting. Um, there's a sense in which the game is something of a respite. It's a break from what is expected and it's a break from really from modernity from the modern age the game is not governed by a clock there are nine innings and if there's nobody uh who wins after nine innings uh the game goes on into extras um i mean i grew up you know watching the cubs in the 80s i mean i remember that 21 inning game it just it took so long and i remember you know plenty of games that just went on forever and as somebody who loves the game and is invested and, and just devoted to following and supporting my home team, who cares? I, I, would, I don't complain that the game takes too long. There are some pitchers who work quickly. There are some pitchers who work slowly. And that can have the effect of upsetting an offense um, you know, that uh, 
that they're pitching to, whatever. I mean, there, there are just, it allows for diversity of styles. And um, yeah, there are, there are long uh, breaks in play. So you've got to sort of stay dialed in. And there's something about that desire to appeal to the masses that I think is just awful. It's awful. Um, I think baseball should be confident in what it is, in the beauty of the game, and not worry about uh, popular appeal. I just, that whole notion of wanting uh, to sort of please the masses or being worried about what other people think um, is, is, it's just so off-putting to me. Like I said about, uh, about U2, I think in some ways they tend to overproduce their albums um, because they're concerned sort of about popular appeal, which I'm not sure that they should be thinking about that. And um, I think in so many areas of life, that's a notion that just causes so much trouble. Um, I think writers should write because they believe in what they're writing and they love uh, capturing, and, capturing and expressing a truth and should be confident in what they write and should love the task and not worry about how it's received or not received. And um, this is one of the reasons why, I mean, I, I've thought long and hard about this. This is one of the reasons why I've said from the beginning that I'm not, I'm podcasting for me. I'm doing this for me as a provocation uh, to sort of stay out of ruts of intellectual laziness. And it's been really beneficial. And I've, uh, I've enjoyed cultivating some conversation partners, which has been a, a real delight. But um, you know, popular appeal does not enter into it at all. I'm not worried about likability at all. I'm not trying to be unlikable. I don't want to be a jerk or a jackass. I don't want to piss anybody off. Um, but this is really for me. I'm not, I'm not trying to um, put people off, but I'm not trying to cultivate uh, any followers or fans or, or, or anything like that. I think that that notion, um, the desire to be likable, again, is and to sort of appeal to the masses is one of the central impulses that runs through evangelical culture and through the evangelical imagination. And I think it's had a lot of bad consequences. Um, and again, I, I was talking about this months ago when I was talking about the Gospel of Mark, but it's not just in Mark. In each of the Gospels, each of the Gospel writers construct the character of the crowd very uh, creatively and very interestingly, and with a high degree of skepticism. Crowds are capricious. They, can, they are not dependable. They are an unreliable character uh, as far as how the narrators construct that character in the four Gospels. And Jesus sort of doesn't give popular appeal any thought at all. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, which is, I mean, the narrative is just so obnoxious. Everything is over the top and stated in just absolutely uh, kind of obnoxious terms. It's just a, such a dramatic gospel. Anyway, the crowd, um, actually, not only does Jesus not appeal to the crowd, but the crowd is an obstacle to Jesus carrying out his ministry. So the character of popular appeal is a value that has to be um, highly, 
we have to be highly critical of that value. Where does that value come from? Paul talks about um, not uh, seeking to please men, but only seeking to please God. So that dynamic has to be has to be examined. And there's a sense in which baseball um, is a discipline. You have to learn the game, just like any game, just like any sport. Football and basketball and soccer are far simpler, although there are subtleties to the game. Those are more accessible sports. But baseball, in a sense, is not an accessible sport in the way that those others are. It needs to be learned. Uh, and, and when you play, you have to sort of know what you're doing and, and you know, learn how to anticipate all that kind of stuff, make adjustments. Uh, although, of course, in every sport, you've got to anticipate what your opponent's going to do and learn to make adjustments. Um, but baseball is not ever really going to be accessible to people in the modern age because it's a game from another era. And in my opinion, it offers rest. When you learn the game and learn its beauties and its subtleties, it can be tremendously enjoyable and wonderful on its own terms. It doesn't have to sort of accommodate to popular desires uh, driven only by entertainment. And in thinking about that, I was thinking about the character of um, the beauty of liturgy. And there are liturgies in every um, cultural sector and variety of venues. Uh, but this is what I, I find beautiful and what I love about liturgical Christian traditions. Um, I was familiar with uh, the Book of Common Prayer for some years and the Christian calendar for some time before we moved to Grand Rapids 10 years ago. But when we moved here, uh, we joined an Episcopal church and just fell in love with uh, the liturgy. But it was not easily accessible. We had been in um, evangelical churches for most of our lives and um, had been in a liturgical context for, for a little while. But I have to say that learning the Episcopal liturgy, uh, the Eucharist, the form of worship on Sunday mornings, it took a long time. Uh, we were we were into it and wanted to learn, but it was like, you know, fumbling this book and that book, and where you know where are we at now? What are we doing now? Um, everything was sort of it felt foreign, and um, but when we discovered sort of its inner logic, I mean, this what was really cool about it was our kids were a bit younger, and on Sundays we'd come home and we'd say, "What, what was going on there? Why did we do this here?" And um, it allowed for us all to sort of discover together the inner logic of the faith in a new way, which was really cool. And um, sort of came to see that the beauty of the liturgy is what makes it not easily accessible. It's not that it's inaccessible, but it's not easily accessible. Uh, it requires that you sort of enter into it and come to understand it over time. And I see it now as a respite, a break uh, from the modern world. Uh, we're so harried and pressed and stressed. And the liturgy calls us, it, it invites us, first of all, which is so cool. Um, the faith is there for us to be, uh, for us to celebrate it, for us to be welcomed, for us to appreciate it from some new perspectives. It's, 
it's very different than sort of like non-denominational evangelicalism, which is, you know, we, we, we have to show up and sort of bring our emotions at 930 on a Sunday morning and, and love this, um, which is not ever how I feel at 930 on a Sunday morning. Um, but the beauty of the liturgy is that it is it offers a, a rest and a respite from, you know, the harried condition of the modern world. And it elevates us and it surrounds us and it upholds us. And um, it allows us to kind of go back to our lives with a, a fresh perspective. Um, anyway, there's that impulse in evangelicalism to kind of boil everything down so that it's easily accessible uh, to just a random person off the street. Anybody can walk in and they know where to bring their kids and they know where this goes, and they know where that goes, and here's the coffee shop. And I mean, everything is sort of uh, oriented to be easily understandable in terms of this world and its culture. Um, but I think in wanting to make things so accessible and uh, appeal to the masses, what evangelicalism has ended up doing is basically eviscerating the faith, um, taking the heart out, taking the heart and soul out of the whole thing in order to be liked and in order to sort of be um, understandable to the masses. Whereas I think that the beauty of liturgical traditions is that it invites, but it's like, you know, um, this is going to require something of you to, to sort of sit and listen and learn over time. And there's no rush. There's no rush. But enter into its beauty and its richness, and you will find that it is giving you gifts, and it's enriching you, and it's providing you with rest and a respite uh, from the harried condition of this modern world. So I think there's an interesting connection, and uh, Austin and I were sort of drawing this connection between the liturgical tradition and liturgical traditions and baseball. It's this beautiful thing. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. And um, sort of the weird place that it's found itself in uh, with the three uh, true outcomes, it'll, I mean, baseball has a history of kind of going this way and that way and pendulum swings. And pretty soon, um, you know, power hitters won't be everything with their launch angles and singles hitters will be prioritized. And, um, you know, guys that are speedy on the base paths, you know, baseball has its pendulum swings. I think we just need to be patient. The greatest corruption that ever took place in baseball was the professionalization of the sport. And um, that has sort of ruined everything and subjected that beautiful game uh, to the logics of capitalism and everybody that's associated with the game to the logics of capitalism, uh, especially its players. Of course, we're blinded by all the you know the lights and the big money, but there's there's a profound corruption that takes place when human beings are commodified, and um, you know value is extracted from their bodies, and then they are discarded. With all professional sports, uh, the logics of capitalism have sort of overtaken, and that's just it's so sad. Um, but that's the game that we have. Like I said earlier. Um, there's value to noting the corruptions, lamenting those, speaking plainly and truthfully about those, but understanding the beauties that there are. And uh, to my mind, baseball is a beautiful game.
I know that this summer I'm going to enjoy it. However the Cubs do, no worries. And I'm going to enjoy a lot of minor league baseball as I do every summer. I want to tell you about a book. It's by Ijoma Aluo, and it's called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. It's published by Seal Press, an imprint of Perseus Books, which is a subsidiary of Hatchet Book Group. I mentioned some of the details of books that I recommend because the publishing world is the subject of daily conversation in my house. The woman to whom I'm related by marriage works for an academic publisher, Baker Academic. So I get sort of an inside view of the publishing world and I've got friends in the publishing industry too, and I find it really interesting. And I love books. I love the feel and smell of a new book. And I especially love hardcover books with solid bindings and really smart covers. And this book is bound really well, and its cover is one of the most striking and just one of the coolest covers I've ever seen. You can look it up on your personal computing device. Now, I've mentioned before that I've been reading a lot over the last several years on the subject of race in America. And I'm doing that uh, because I want to know the contours of the injustices that have shaped our national history and that continue to orient its present condition of injustice. And I do that because I aim to be Christian and to discern how I can participate in God's order of social and public justice brought into being by the kingdom of God. And I especially enjoy reading books by black women, since they are the truth tellers of our culture. And I'm a colleague to black women and many African-American men and women are students at the seminary at which I teach. And I want to know how I can posture and position myself in order to create a classroom culture that signals to them that they belong, that they are essential. I've come to see that the seminary environment in which I do my work is shaped by whiteness and maleness so that I constantly receive the signal that I, as a white man, belong. I'd never noticed that before. I was blind to it. It seemed normal. And of course it did. But that situation is unacceptable if I aim to be Christian and inhabit a kingdom of God reality where white women and non-white women and men are my sisters and brothers in Christ a reality in which we together serve a God who shows no partiality. And I want to cultivate the discernment to know how to function in my organization to create a space for my colleagues and fellow students who are African-Americans to thrive and flourish. I've come to see that it's unfair and inappropriate for me as a white man to depend on my colleagues, who are people of color, to give me free diversity training. It's up to me to do the work. That's my responsibility, not theirs. I'm grateful when people trust me enough to share their experiences, but I can't expect that or demand that from them. And there are so many great resources out there. So I do the work. And this isn't pure labor or a kind of sacrifice. I've come to see that in learning about racial realities in America, I'm learning about myself. Race does not affect black people alone. Our racialized and patriarchal culture has also affected white men, distorting our conceptions of who we are in relation to others and to ourselves. Discerning this corrupted reality opens up possibilities of envisioning redemptive pathways of putting off the old humanity, having a renewed imagination, and putting on the new humanity 
of who God has created us to be in Christ. So learning about race is a process of discerning how the present evil age has affected all of us. And as I said, I want to inform my imagination about all of this to clear space to imagine what being Christian might be in this place that we've all agreed to call America. All of that to say, I was eager to read Aluo's recent work. Several years ago, a friend let me borrow her copy of Aluo's first book, So You Want to Talk About Race, which I found seriously enlightening. When I saw that she had a new book coming out, I was eager to get it. Aluo exposes the cultural dynamic that has centered white men and created in them the assumption that they are entitled to positions of ascendancy and supremacy over women and people of color. That assumption has done loads of damage throughout society, affecting women and non-white people, and it's also had a devastating effect on white men themselves. White male supremacy had devastating effects on Native people in America, and Aluo tells the story of the displacement of Native peoples who were driven west, their lands having been stolen by powerful and violent white men. She narrates an account of William Cody, nicknamed Bu uh, Buffalo Bill, who led hunting sprees, probably better called slaughters, of buffalo in the West, upon whom Native people depended for food, clothing, and shelter. The results, of course, were catastrophic for Native people. And the theft of federal lands by violent white men in the West continues today in the ongoing saga of the Bundy family. Aluo has a fascinating discussion of the phenomenon of the Bernie Bros, the white men who supported Bernie Sanders in the last few presidential elections. Sanders focused solely on class divisions and ignored social dynamics of race. And he attracted to himself disaffected and angry white men who directed ferocious racial and misogynistic rhetoric at black women who criticized Sanders' politics on race. Aluo relays some emails and Twitter messages that she and others received, and they are staggering. Aluo has much to say about black women in national politics, in the history of the American workforce, and so much more. And her common theme is the exposure of the sense of entitlement on the part of white men that they deserve positions of prominence and power. And when women or black men and black men and women occupy those spaces and positions, white men take it as a personal affront. Something's being taken from us. We deserve those positions. And if you have them, we will make your life hell. That sense of entitlement and the rage, resentment, and violence that it generates is profoundly toxic. For white men who want to work toward a society in which everyone flourishes, that is where our work lies. I'm grateful for Ajoma Luo's work. It's a provocative and enlightening book, exactly the sort of work that is a help to me in discerning how our culture functions to distort imaginations, including mine. I highly recommend it. Once again, the book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America by Ajoma Aluo. It's published by Seal Press. Get it, as I did, from an independent bookstore. So I got an email from Tiffany the other day, and she's written me over the last uh, number of months, a couple of times. We've had some good interchanges. And uh, she asked me if I would talk about 
women in ministry. And um, I got to say, I initially was really hesitant. I uh, It's not a topic that I really wanted to take up. Um, and I, uh, it's funny, I just sort of had some hesitancy. I said, well, yeah, we'll see. You know, that may be something I talk about down the road. And um, I don't know, when I have reactions to various things um, that I encounter, those are reactions that I take walks with and I do some excavation. What's behind that? Why would you have said that? What what would give you pause to talk about that topic? So um, I had a lot to think about. And um, there's a couple of reasons, really. I feel like I really want to know what I'm talking about. So I don't talk about things where I, it's sort of like a knee jerk reaction. Um, many of the things that I've given, that I've talked about in this space, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And um, I, I don't like to just sort of shoot from the hip. And I have to say that there are, um, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced, I'm absolutely convinced uh, that in the Christian church, uh, every part of every person in the church is warmly welcomed to fully participate in anything and everything, and that there ought not to be restrictions uh, for the full participation of every person in ministry. And um, the thing is, though, a lot of the texts that are in play are not ones that I've spent a lot of time really wrestling with. Much of my research in Paul's letters has been in, in other passages and on other topics, and I've not really uh, dived deep into them. And I don't feel like I want to talk about things unless I know what I'm, what I'm talking about as a, as a biblical scholar. Um, so the process of scholarship and participating in academia, I don't know that this beats it out of everybody, but it sure beat it out of me feeling like uh, after doing my um, dissertation, it's like you've got to be able to back up and defend every sentence of what you write. And when you publish something in academic articles, in academic journals, it's like, you better know what you're talking about or else someone's going to tear you apart. And uh, I do know that there are some people that the process of participating in the academy does not beat that out of them. They still speak presumptuously in, in areas where they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, but that's the effect that it's had on me. So if I don't know something, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about it. And a lot of the texts that are in play are not ones I've spent a lot of time talking about or uh, studying. And not only that, but others have just written a lot of great stuff. And, and I feel like I want to just point to them. So like one person is Nijay Gupta, uh, who's an all around just fantastic person, a uh, good thinker, excellent scholar, world-class scholar. And um, he did a, a series, maybe this was last fall. Uh, I don't quite remember. Maybe a year ago, a year, year or two ago. He did a series, if you just Google um, or type into any search engine, uh, Nijay Gupta blog posts, women in ministry. Uh, I think you'll land on a page where, you know, all 20 are sort of co uh, collected, 20 or 22. And it was really thorough and just 
treated text really uh, excellently. And um, I don't know. I probably wanted to say, look at what Nijay said. He nailed it. Also, it seems to me that um, the uh, texts themselves are not the issue here alone. Um, but uh, her hermetically, the situation is really fraught. That is to say, I feel overmatched because I don't know what I would like to know about the dynamics of gender. And I would point here to uh, Cynthia Westfall's just, you know, incredible work where she takes a uh, pretty serious account of thinking about gender and uh, those sorts of dynamics in reading Paul. Um, and others like uh, Scott McKnight has a small book, uh, booklet on, I think, uh, Junia. And uh, Mike Bird has, has written some things. And uh, along the hermeneutical line, you know, Beth Allison Barr's work, or I, or I should say this, I think it's really important that we understand our historical context, not only the first century historical context, but ours. And uh, Beth Allison Barr's book and Christine Dumais' book have done uh, great stuff on that. Um, so I have just felt like I, there, there's just so much that I, I, I don't feel like I've gotten my head around in order to speak well on this matter. Um, and that's to say nothing of a lot of the material, uh, or I should say the historical work that Beth Allison Barr's book does not focus on. And of course, she can't say everything. That book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, I think is absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's incredible, so helpful and timely. Um, but Sarah, my life partner, did her master's work in um, American religious history, focusing especially on women. And there is just loads of good scholarship telling the story of the place of women in American culture and in the Christian church over the last several hundred years. And what is most interesting is the history of uh, women's roles in, in homes and in the wider culture in light of the uh, Industrial Revolution and all that that did to sort of um, pull, to sort of reshape domestic life, uh, where male spaces became, um, you know, spaces outside the home in factories and in cities, and um, female spaces became spaces inside the home. That was a cultural phenomenon in uh, Victorian and post-Victorian American culture. And that's a phenomenon that is largely reflected in how evangelicals have just come to think about what is it, you know, what's expected of men and women in uh, home life and in church life. And um, and so that whole history has to be taken into account. And I I have felt hesitant to weigh in on things because I just don't know that history as well as I would really like to know it. So um, anyway, when Tiffany asked me about that. I just thought, well, I don't really don't have any thoughts on this. I my thoughts would be the thoughts that a lot of other people would have. But um, as I began to sort of ponder what I might say or what I would have to contribute to the issue, I thought, you know, I started rolling out some thoughts and realized I do have some things to say. Um, and not only that. But it seems to me um, uh, I don't like the notion um, of being in a privileged position, of being a white male 
and not speaking up on behalf of women in the larger culture or in uh, the institution that I inhabit and uh, in classroom spaces and in the church. And so uh, if there are some things that I do have to say, I should say them because I can't afford not to. And I don't like that feeling. I don't like, I don't like the privilege of being able to check out on an issue like with regard to gender and race. So with all that said, um, here are just a handful of thoughts. <clears throat> First of all, just like any issue, um, what I try to do is when any kind of question is asked or when, when we're doing, having any kind of a conversation about any topic, I'm always, I'm always, um, especially attuned to whether or not we're, we're even asking the right questions. I always want to reframe and rethink not the, not the issue, but even just how we're having the discussion. And I've never been happy with the sort of the, the polls on the issue, as it were, you know, complementarianism and egalitarianism. I just don't like thinking in these terms. I, I don't find them entirely helpful uh, because men and women are in a sense complementary. Um, there are differences in gender, but there are loads of difference differences within genders. And um, I don't like the notion of egalitarianism either. That seems to me to sort of come from uh, a liberal democratic view of things, like a post-enlightenment view, like we're all equal. Uh, whereas in the New Testament, it's not merely that we're all equal. Uh, we all belong to one another. There's, um, I think Scott McKnight uses the term mutuality. And I, I like that better. Um, so, you know, in a sense, functionally, there will be something like equality. I'm not even happy with that term equality because that, again, is an enlightenment term. People are equal. They have equal rights, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a sense in which that's, I, I don't completely disagree with that, but it's that conceives of issues uh, that set us apart from one another as equals. Uh, we very well may be in competition with one another. Uh, but in an, uh, from a New Testament perspective, we're siblings. We belong to one another. We're, we're integrally connected. And there are differences. So um, anyway, I wasn't intending to talk about any of that. I'm just not happy with those labels. And I'd rather not use a label. But I do think that the issue needs to be reframed and rethought. And so very often, I like to sort of turn things on their head. And so that's why I'm calling this episode The Problem of Men in Ministry. What if we just kind of flip things around, turn it around? Like I said, when it, whenever I'm having any kind of discussion or sort of thinking through an issue, um, you know, change the dynamics of the conversation and just see what happens. See if some light develops uh, from doing that. So that's why I thought I would do this because really for me, when it comes to men and women in churches, the problem uh, is not... It's not a, a problem of women, or it's not a problem with women in ministry. That's not the problem. The chief problem is men and uh, male insecurity when it comes to considering and conceiving of women in ministry, um, uh, masculine fear, uh, grasping for power and quest for control. Those are the issues. Just like, um, you know, there's no problem of black people, W.E.B. Du Bois said this a so, you know, hundred years ago or so, uh, addressing 
quote unquote, the Negro problem. He said, there isn't one. There is no Negro problem in America. There's a problem of white people. And that is reframing the issue to sort of put the onus, you know, to put the focus where it belongs. And I think that in the Christian church, the problem is with men and not with women in ministry. Um, and I think that Kristen Dumay, um, Joma Luo's book was very enlightening on this, where she gets at it. She gets at the core of the issue. It's male insecurity, male fear, um, quest for power, desire for control, uh, the sense that we deserve to kind of be running things. And if women are running things, then something is dramatically off. And uh, that is highly problematic. What's, what is problematic is the male imagination of how culture should be and of how uh, family cultures should be and how church cultures should be. That's where I think we need to start there. The problem is not uh, women's desires uh, for things. In fact, when men frame the issues that way, women want control, women want power. That's pure projection. It's complete projection. And um, people who are in power and control tend to project their own desires onto those that they are oppressing. They project their own desires onto those that they are dominating. And when it comes to this issue, we have exactly the same case. Uh, another consideration, I didn't number these. They're just bullet points. Uh, but another consideration for me uh, is that Paul's texts are not all clear. Um, yeah, that's right. A lot of Paul's texts need to be rethought in some of the details and in some of the big stretches. Um, it's not entirely clear what he was getting at. And I'm saying this as a person who spends his life looking closely at Pauline texts. And the reason why I say it's not entirely clear it's because there are more things that need to be taken into account in reading any passage of scripture than just the words on the page. Ancient context has a big part uh, to do, uh, has, has a big part in this, and understanding our own context when we read texts. So we had this discussion the other day in our hermeneutics class um, about a passage that is apparently entirely clear obviously clear. And I've talked about this before in talking about the household codes. We looked at another one of the household codes in Colossians 3 and 4, um, where Paul talks about uh, wives being subject to their husbands, um, husbands loving their wives, children being subject to their fathers, and uh, fathers not provoking their children, and of course, slaves being obedient to their masters and masters not mistreating their slaves. That is so absolutely clear. <clears throat> um, until you look at contemporary household codes from the ancient world and you read what uh, social critics and political philosophers are intending when they use the household code form. They're talking about how an ideal society should look. And because they can't um, talk about all the particulars of a society, they focus on its smallest social unit, which is a household. And um, so they talk about the kinds of behaviors that ought to be, or the kinds of relationships that ought to exist there. Those are not necessary. Well, 
Also, there's the difference between an ancient household and a contemporary nuclear family. There are just these dramatic differences, and all of those things shape how we are supposed to read Paul's texts. And all of that uh, basically indicates to us that we have to have a lot more subtlety and care with how we regard um, those household codes. And um, a passage like 1 Timothy 2, which is typically sort of the last readout of um, of complementarians and patriarchicalists, um, that passage is not entirely clear. There are loads of interpretive difficulties about that. You can just read sort of one isolated part of it and say, well, you you either submit to Scripture or you don't. But the question remains, what exactly is Paul saying? And it just might be, as uh, some recent scholars have proposed, that Paul is addressing something that is live and up and running in a current ideology in Ephesus, which is having some dramatic effects on the gathering of the church in Ephesus and the practices that are going on there. That's highly likely. Paul's texts are, um, I mean, each of each of Paul's letters are written into, um, in hermeneutics class, we talk about how they are, you know, when we read Paul's passages, we are reading other people's mail, and we don't know the other side of the story. We don't know what exactly he's addressing. And so there's a lot of reconstruction that is necessary to understand the concrete situation that Paul is addressing. So in many of these situations that are in texts that are difficult to understand, we just we simply don't have enough information to go on. And um, anyway, just to say, I think this is something that people have to get comfortable with. There's a lot, there are, there are good chunks of Paul's letters that are not easily understood. I mean, Paul said in 1 Corinthians that women should be silent. 1 Corinthians 14. That's three chapters after he had talked about uh, sort of some, you know, the appropriate way that men and women should prophesy in the church. So which is it, Paul? Are women supposed to be silent or not? Well, it's likely that in chapter 14, Paul is addressing uh, a specific situation. And the Corinthians know what he means. And whoever's reading to them the letter, who has been sitting with Paul as he wrote the letter, will be able to elaborate a bit further on what he means. But when we as modern Bible readers come across that passage, it's mystifying. Same is true of 1 Timothy 2. Same is true of a number of other texts. And uh, treatment of these passages requires some care. I can give you an analogy. Um, imagine that there's a pastor that um, has been preaching for 15 years in a church, and she's been kind of weaving, you know, a large overarching vision of how uh, the church can make its way together in the world and navigate challenges and opportunities. And um, that sort of large body of work, if you gather all those manuscripts, um, in many ways would paint a picture of how the believers in that church should consider and conceive of their lives, how they should think about being Christian, and how they should think about being Christian together. Now imagine that that very same pastor has been counseling a number of people and couples and families over 15 years and say, you know, she's counseled, she's, you know, uh, conducted 20 counseling sessions over the course 
of 15 years. I'm going to do the math real fast. I think that's 300. Say that you have, um, you know, 300 kind of uh, text readouts or like manuscripts of what that pastor has told the different people that she has counseled, but you don't know the names of any of the people that she's counseled and you don't know their situations or even if you knew their names, but didn't know their situations. Um, it would be a little bit more precarious in, in thinking about, um, in thinking about sort of, uh, how do I want to say this? You'd be on thinner ice if you said, I'm going to take all of these manuscripts together and they're going to be the basis upon which I think about my own Christian life and I think about how this church should make its way forward in being Christian together. Because that pastor will inevitably um, be dealing with people who have addictions and uh, she might take a real gracious approach and invite people into patterns of life that are um, uh, life-giving and offer support. Other times she might be uh, dealing with somebody who is uh, being abusive in their family and she might be confrontational and she might offer different counsel to different people going through different situations. That is exactly what we have with Paul's letters. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in a study of Romans right now. This is going to be where I'm at uh, for the foreseeable future. And one of the biggest problems in dealing with Romans is that we simply don't know the exact character of the situation that he addresses. I mean, it's nuts. With all that we know about first century Rome, we have almost zero information about first century Roman churches with regard to the situation that Paul is addressing. So was it a tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? Were they all Gentile Christians, but the character of Jew, you know, Jewish identity is sort of uh, what is dividing them? We know nothing about the situation lying behind uh, the letter to the Hebrews. So th a lot of interpretation of the letters is quite mysterious. And one of the one of the illusions in the evangelical imagination is that when it comes to sort of all the you know stretches of biblical literature, you know, you've got the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the gospels and acts, and then revelation, uh, and then the letters. What is an illusion? is that Paul and the other letter writers finally were clear. Like, all that Old Testament stuff is so unclear. Paul is where things are clear. That's a total illusion. Um, I mean, goodness, the law is quite clear. Or I should say Torah is quite clear. The prophets are quite clear. And the Gospels are to be the center of gravity in the New Testament. And when communities go off the rails... An apostle writes a letter, or when a community faces stresses and difficulties, they hear from an apostle. And when we try to understand what an apostle would say to, to um, those churches, we're doing a lot of sort of guesswork as far as what exactly is going on behind the scenes. So anyway, just to say there's the problem of a lack of clarity in Paul's texts. and. It's really interesting, Beth Allison Barr makes this point in her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, that throughout Christian history, it's not the case that Paul has been drawn upon the way that conservative, white, evangelical people, especially complementarians, uh, which go beyond just merely white people, 
it's not the case that Paul has been drawn upon in Christian history like he is now. And there's something about that. What is the deal with that? What's going on with our culture and our cultural you know, tensions that make us read Paul differently than how he's been read in the history of the church and read him differently in a way that makes us ignore the dynamics, uh, the gender dynamics of what's actually happening in the Gospels and Acts. Uh, anyway, there's just, just to say, when you encounter folks who camp out in Paul, well, I don't even want to say when you encounter folks. Um, well, maybe I will say it that way. When you encounter people who camp out in Paul and imagine him to be fairly, to be uh, quite clear in what he actually says, and that clarity ends up um, restricting or constraining the the way that women can participate in our faith communities, um, and they insist on that clarity. I'm watching some birds chase each other around outside my window. Anyway, when you hear that kind of rhetoric with biblical authority and, and inerrancy kind of backing it up, just realize there's more going on, likely some power games or simplistic readings of scripture. People are not really grappling with scripture the way that they ought to be. Another consideration, uh, what, what, one of the things that I find interesting is that uh, patriarchalists, is it patriarchalists or patriarchalists? I don't know, those folks. What I find interesting about that crowd and and um, people from that perspective is that they will very often, and, and uh, Kristen Demay gets at this in, in her book, um, they will typically celebrate the masculinity of ministry um, and, you know, sort of this protector role over the church and uh, the necessity of male leadership in families, um, as if there's something about strong men that sort of, you know, spread their wings over their families and kind of look out for them and care for them in certain ways. There's this kind of celebration of masculinity when it comes to leadership in the church and in the family. And uh, that's to say nothing of the idolatry of the nuclear family. We'll set that aside for now. But I think that what is really interesting like John Piper several years ago made this comment about, you know, there's something masculine about Christianity, which is, uh, you know, one of the most idolatrous things that come out of his mouth. There's been a number, but as an idolatrous conception, it's associating uh, the way of Jesus with maleness. And uh, that's an inappropriate association. Um. What is interesting is that the same crowd that insists on biblical authority does that with masculinity in a way that Paul does not. Paul does not think about his apostleship the way that many uh, complementarian folks talk about ministry and leadership and families. In fact, Paul never does that. Paul does, uh, very interestingly, talk about his apostleship in female terms. He says in Galatians that he is a, a woman in labor. And he uses the same metaphor in Romans 8, uh, labor pains. He talks about um, how he is a nursing mother, talks about how, how he is a wet nurse. So when Paul uses metaphors, and, and Beverly Gaventa's book, Our, Our Mother St. Paul, is just brilliant on this. And she's such an incredible exegete, great, uh, one of the top Pauline scholars around today. Uh, but in her book, she goes into Paul's use of these metaphors. And when Paul talks about his apostleship, he talks about his apostolic ministry in 
feminine terms, in terms of nurture. And it's so interesting to me that, um, you know, complementarian folks will typically gravitate to Paul, but what they're actually doing is gravitating towards and drawing upon a construction of Paul. Again, in that crowd and from that ideology, there is loads of projection. Um, Theologically, there's a lot of projection of their own hopes and desires for power and control onto God. And there's a lot of projection um, of their own desires for power and control and authority onto Paul. I mean, how many times does that crowd talk about apostolic authority? And how many times does Paul talk about apostolic authority? He speaks more about his apostleship in terms of nurture. He does not talk about leadership. I, I was shocked and um, I thought I had all my sort of research and material together when I wrote uh, Power and Weakness. But in the process of writing it and just looking for uh, leadership language in Paul, I couldn't find it. And um, kind of was struck by the fact that I need to reshape my language away from leadership language. And I'm, str- I'm still striving to kind of um, renovate my vocabulary and renew it and talk about something more like responsible care, pastoral responsible care and nurture. Because the way that Paul constructs it, it is not about authority. It's not about leadership. It's about responsible care. So I think that the whole notion of leadership needs to be reconsidered. And um, evangelicalism as a culture is loaded with talk of leadership. There are so many leader development programs. It's like a leadership culture. And um, when you really think about it, I mean, I've tried to think about it. I don't know why that's the case. I don't know why. I don't know why evangelicals think in those terms and why there is such a strong focus on leadership. Um, Perhaps it's because the culture was just sort of formed this way, like leaders formed it. And, uh, you know, they formed this network of denominational, you know, this network of churches that kind of weakened denominational ties. And because they sort of imagine that the culture is just this way, we need to be developing leaders. I have no idea why. And it seems to me that so much of the leadership material that is uh, sort of passed on in evangelical circles and in evangelical culture is just sort of stuff taken from... Uh, you know, leadership in business or leadership in government and, you know, with a bunch of Jesus talks sprinkled on top and, you know, episodes from the, the Gospels just kind of ripped out of their context and hijacked and put to use to talk about leadership, which is so interesting uh, because Christians are called to be followers, not leaders. That's just really interesting. Um, and there's... There's a lot of projection, like I said, with regard to projection um, of our desires onto Paul. I think there are a lot of denominational or uh, evangelical leaders who, when they think about themselves and when they think about leadership, they imagine themselves to be Paul. I've heard a number of evangelical leaders talk in these ways where they just sort of imagine that they know what Paul is thinking. And I wrote a, an article in Christianity Today about 10 years or, ago or so. Um, called The Paul We Think We Know, because Scott McKnight had written an article a year earlier called The Jesus Will Never Know about the historical Jesus versus the Jesus in the Gospels. And right when I read it, I was like, I was in the middle of um, doing another project on on Paul. 
And I was just so struck by how it is that that um, we have all these modern notions of what a leader is like, and we imagine Paul in all those terms, despite the fact that there are explicit statements that he makes that he's not like that. And, um, you know, especially somebody who's attractive and has a magnetic personality and someone who's rhetorically powerful. Paul says that in Second um, Corinthians, he says, I know what you're saying about me there. That he talks big in his letters, but then he gets here and you can't even hear him in the back. Like he was, he was not an attractive person to listen to. He would not have had a magnetic personality at all. And um, he was probably like the absolute epitome of an Old Testament nerd, like an Old Testament scholar who's just, I don't know. So many of the other figures in the, uh, in the first century church, like Peter, Barnabas, John, I mean, these guys are brawlers. They're just, um, you know, they're, those are the magnetic types and uh, the kind of people who were sort of leaders of people and, um, you know, were appropriate for the, the Jerusalem church. And when Paul showed up, uh, they didn't, they didn't really like him all that much. There would have been tension between Peter and Paul. And uh, read the passage where Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem at the end of his uh, third journey. And James doesn't even say anything nice to him. He's just like, you know, it's not great that you're here. <laughs> there was no like welcome. You know, Luke does not say in that episode, uh, once we filled him in uh, on all that we had been doing around the Mediterranean, it's like, nope. It's just James is like, you know what? It's not good that you're here. We're not in the Paul fan club here in Jerusalem. Anyway, uh, another consideration. Uh, I think that the ways that we imagine church need to be considered in this whole context. And I think that um, here's where I think we run into an obstacle when so many of our, um, like I said, with regard to evangelicalism, evangelicalism is this kind of amorphous reality that is it's embodied in uh, large churches and it's embodied in Christian organizations and institutions. And the leadership culture in all of those institutions is largely white and male. And that's how we imagine pastoral leadership through those frames. Uh, so that when we think of someone, you know, standing up to speak to 500 or a thousand or 5,000 people, we want that sort of magnetic and uh, charismatic uh, figure who's white and male and attractive and all the rest, visually appealing, and who represents sort of like the norm of culture, which is white and male. Keep in mind that most churches in the New Testament were as many people as you could fit into a living room. I mean, churches in the New Testament are like eight to 20 people. And consider Paul's exhortations in that kind of a context. I mean, should should women be silent in small group settings? And what does silent mean? Can a woman point out that um, before we start our book discussion, make sure that you notice that there are some snacks over there on the table? Uh, is it only a man that can say that? Is it absolute silence? If, if there's a discussion of like a book or something like that, um, can women speak up? Can they ask questions? Paul said for women to not ask questions, uh, but to ask their husbands at home. But when we think about church, we should really be thinking of most of what we experience in certainly in modern America is like small groups. That's church. 
and uh, like in Galatia and in in Rome and in probably in a number of other places, uh, those house churches were networked. They were connected and they knew each other. But when they met, they didn't meet in a big building uh, with a big presentation and a huge video board. Um, and like I said, um, quote unquote leadership roles or oversight roles was, uh, were sort of positions of responsible care. And um, it seems to me that Paul is writing in a context where um, the larger culture is patriarchal and his instructions in some pretty massive ways subvert that patriarchy, although he doesn't call for sort of the out and out overthrow of it. I mean, it's that kind of thing is, it's not really even possible, I think. Um, another thought, like I said, these aren't numbered. I was trying to think about how it is that gender in the Christian church and in the home and, and gender roles, I just have to say, I hate that expression. Um, <clears throat> in our desire to sort of make our lives so predictable, we slot people into roles. And I think that that's completely destructive. It's constraining and constricting and limiting. And um, yeah, I just, I, I banish that, that language. I think it's awful. But I was, I was thinking about how it is that this issue has a lot of people really fired up. You know, the Theo bros um, get all fired up about women in ministry and will write very harshly about it. And certainly when any woman writes a book like Amy Bird or Beth Allison Barr or Kristen Dumay, um, the kind of violent and abusive and dismissive and angry rhetoric that comes out of um, conservative Christian culture is just staggering. Uh, to say nothing of that, even people who are kind and polite and complementarians um, will take a strong stand when it comes to women in ministry. And so I was asking myself, what, what does Paul take a strong stand on when he talks about ministry? And I would just direct your attention to the pastoral letters and uh, to you know read them a number of times and, and read them with your eyes open. What is he fired up about? The things that Paul wants to uh, get at is people who are ministering out of a sense of um, you know selfish ambition. He has a lot to say actually about selfish ambition. He has a lot to talk about when it comes to uh, people who are angry and uh, along with James and about how demonically inspired that is. And I just wonder where are the Theobros? when it comes to some of these folks expressing themselves so angrily or getting so worked up or being denunciatory. Paul has a lot to say about that. Where's the outcry over biblical authority with people uh, you know, being so pugilistic when Paul says that that is the kind of person to be on the lookout for and to watch out for. They are dangerous. And uh, what amazes me about, I don't know, that conservative cultures, we identify people who are angry and worked up over issues, and we're like, hey, send them a seminary. They've got a great future. Something is dramatically off there. People who are uh, who get fired up and get angry are people that Paul uh, would identify as problematic. 
uh, when it comes to ministry, having self-mastery and self-control, um, cultivating contentment, practicing hospitality. Uh, these are sort of like a lot of soft virtues and soft practices, not very masculine. Um, again, Paul's stress is on nurture and uh, carefully uh, and gently cultivating warm community life. Uh, one of the other thoughts that I, I have is that what is really interesting to me is that in nearly every one of his letters, and I laid this out in uh, Power and Weakness, and what I was really struck by is the letter openings and the letter closings of Paul, where he takes great pains to set himself alongside of all his ministry partners. When we think about the Apostle Paul, we think about this Lone Ranger figure, you know, this kind of self-made man, you know, because that's the ideology that affects us as American people. And that's an ideology that strongly affects evangelical culture and the evangelical imagination. And we imagine Paul is this decisive leader. And yes, he had sort of team members, but they were all on team Paul. And, you know, there's Timothy and there's Titus and Epaphroditus. And there are, um, you know, a handful of others. Luke was with him and Mark. What's really interesting is that in Paul's letter openings and closings, and then also uh, in various places like in Colossians when Paul and Philippians, when Paul makes mention of his ministry partners, he stresses that they are partners. They are co-workers, co-laborers, co-prisoners, co-slaves, co-servants. He never, ever portrays himself as like the leader of a team because Paul is all about mutuality. And when he portrays himself with reference to his churches, he always situates himself either alongside them or under them. Now, what I wonder about is among the, the crowd that is so eager to stress biblical authority when it comes to ministry modes, why are they not fired up about the stratification of rankings on church staffs? Like we have senior pastors or executive pastors and the way that the evangelical imagination works, you know, ministry is like a career trajectory. You know, you kind of start out as a puny uh, youth pastor or children's pastor. And then you kind of, and, and we can have women doing that because that's lower ranking. Uh, but as you work your way up, you know, someday, son, you'll have a church. You'll be a senior pastor or someday, son, you'll be pastor of this church, you'll be senior pastor and have the parking lot closest to the building. Why are, why is that not seen as a violation of Paul's ministry mode? And where's the outcry over um, the reality that in evangelicalism, people identify themselves and their kind of Christianity with like celebrity preachers and speakers and writers? And oftentimes, uh, oftentimes churches identify themselves as like, this is so-and-so's church and you know he preaches to thousands or whatever. So a church can take on its identity uh, based on the personality and the cultivated image of that great leader, quote unquote, when that is a direct violation uh, of how Paul constructs his household codes, that um, the household which in the ancient world always had its identity by the paterfamilias, uh, by the household owner. For Paul, the household has its identity from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this is why Jesus says in the Gospels, call no man father. Uh, that doesn't mean you should address your own dad. Um, that means that the kingdom of God culture that is created by the gospel is identified with Jesus alone, with God alone. It's not identified by any human. Okay, so these kind of celebrity cultures that develop and celebritized followings in churches that sort of see themselves as we're a we're a that person kind of a church. Where are all the biblical authority folks? Why don't they show up in those kind of discussions? Because that is a direct violation of scripture. That's that that kind of ministry model or model of church life or those practices in evangelicalism fly directly in the face of what Jesus says and what Paul says. Um, but like I said, on pastoral staffs, uh, we have ministry practices modeled that Paul was basically intent on overthrowing. And I know that that's basically all of our evangelical churches are that way because we have just, when we have imagined conducting ourselves in community life as Christian people, our template is not the teaching of Jesus. Our template is not the teaching of Paul. Again, like I said, we have the vocabulary from the Bible. We have the vocabulary of the gospel, but we do not have the grammar of the gospel. We do not have the grammar of the New Testament. Our template is actually the business world, corporations, companies. I mean, the logic of capitalism has overtaken, well, this is for a future episode, the logic of capitalism and modernism created evangelicalism, and it also shapes basically the corporate life of our churches because they're based on the business world and the rankings and hierarchies that are necessary in cultures of control and in uh, in capitalist cultures. Um, boy, oh boy. I thought that I had a lot of thoughts about this and I, I, or that I had no thoughts about this, but my goodness, I have a number. So a further one, uh, I think it's really important to recognize, and this is huge, that any and every issue has a number of different dimensions. And I think that each of these sort of points, if you want to think about a triangle or whatever, I think each of these points have to be considered. Every issue has deep New Testament theological grammar dimensions. Uh, it also has contemporary cultural dimensions. That is, um, so the, with, the, with the first issue, um, the deep New Testament theological grammar dimensions, it's important to get at not only does what this or that text says, but the question is, what are the deep... Um, what's the deep New Testament theological grammar about this topic? How does, you know, how can we reason theologically and think well in sort of new creation with a new creation orientation about this issue? That's the first sort of point. Uh, the, the second point, sort of on a triangle, is the contemporary cultural dimensions. That is, when you take any kind of a viewpoint on any kind of an issue, my question always is, what kind of a church culture thinks this way? That is, like, what kind of church culture does this ideology produce and which produces this ideology? So, sorry, that's only two. 
not three points, but both of those poles have to be held together because it's, it's a modern conceit. That is, it's an illusion that ideas have consequences. That is, um, sort of we move from the mind to the heart to, to life. That's, that's a Greek way of thinking that is not a sort of a, you know, an Old Testament way of thinking. And that's a modern way of thinking um, that there are, there, are, there are ideas that produce consequences. There are ideas that produce outcomes. There is doctrine that produces kinds of life. That is an illusion. It's actually a relationship that goes both ways. There are kinds of lives that produce kinds of doctrine. There are kinds of church cultures that are sort of already agreed upon um, and that usually develop without anybody agreeing upon them. They just kind of develop over time. And those church cultures are the kinds of church cultures that think in certain ways. So, you know, they have sort of agreed upon and already set practices of what they're going to find when they study any Bible passage. So I think it's important to, um, to think carefully about the kinds of church cultures that read the Bible in certain ways. And certainly in um, a complementarian or a sort of a patriarchal, I'll just use that term because that's really what's going on here. On patriarchal readings of the Bible, uh, those are typically oppressive environments because patriarchy, just like race and racism, is about power and control and about the consolidation of power and control in the hands of a few and almost always white men. And that power and control is consolidated so that women uh, can be uh, under control and uh, limited. And uh, so that people who are regarded as other are also limited and controlled, if not just entirely marginalized and excluded. And I think it's important to note the kinds of church cultures that think in those terms. And uh, they end up being oppressive and exclusive, and they end up being characterized by power and the marginalization of other groups. That's an important consideration to me. Um, another consideration, oh, oh, oh I, I actually, I want to say this along that line. <clears throat> um, that is, to me, highly problematic. It's highly problematic that you would have any kind of a situation where women would be in Christian churches generated and created by the Christian gospel and be in situations where they are discouraged or have the feeling of being limited or oppressed, where they are not uh, given life, where they are not um, cared for, and looked after and encouraged and empowered. Uh, and I say that based on you know, basically on the whole of Luke and Acts, um, but also ba on the basis of the Gospel of Mark and uh, Matthew and John as well. But what's interesting to me about what's going on in Luke is Luke has a special emphasis on uh, gender and ethnicity in ways that highlight God's care for the oppressed and the fact that he lifts up the oppressed. And this is Mary's song when, you know, after she receives, uh, where is this, in Luke 1 or 2, where Mary celebrates the arrival of God's salvation. And she talks about how God is bringing low the exalted and lifting up the oppressed. And that dynamic is a dynamic that should be embodied in Christian churches. And if the oppressed are 
further oppressed and the exalted defend their positions of exaltation, in what sense does a church like that have any right to say that the Christian gospel is operative there? I don't know. I, I, I can't say with any confidence that that's not just a gathering of some people. And again, they're using Christian vocabulary, but the grammar of the gospel is not operative there, at least how Luke understands it. And Luke's gospel, by the way, is not as wild and woolly as Mark's uh, gospel, but it's every bit as threatening um, to a comfortable culture. I mean, my goodness, when when the Beatitudes in in uh, in Luke and then the woes are just terrifying. If you are a comfortable middle class person, um, you know, blessed are the hungry. Woe to you who are who are full. That's that's really scary. Woe to you who are uh, who have plenty. But anyway, this is getting quite long. I'm going to sort of work my way through some of these other points. Um, I think it's really interesting. Um, I don't know. This is this is kind of a complicated point. It seems to me that the architecture of liberal democracy is the same as the architecture of evangelicalism, and it has produced the same thing, and that is a lot of angry men and a lot of entitled men. And uh, what was really eye-opening to me on this on this note was Pankaj Mishra's book, Age of Anger, that I know I've mentioned before, but it is honestly just blew my mind and expanded my imagination, and I'm still trying to sort of come to grips with it. Uh, but he talks about how um, this whole culture of liberal democracy in which all of us are kind of set loose from our traditional environments and we're all these individual actors uh, moving uh, up on the social ladder and accumulating more goods and sort of on this these trajectories of upward mobility, pursuing the American dream. That's been a vision, and we're all sort of in competition with each other. That's been a vision that has been sort of spread throughout the world, um, basically starting in France. He tells that whole story. But he talks about how it has created a global mood, and it creates a mood and uh, has emotional payoffs wherever that ideology lands. And it has landed most fully in America. And wherever it does land, it creates a lot of uh, very few winners and a lot of losers. Because everybody is told this great promise of like what you could achieve and what you could have if you only apply yourself and work hard. Uh, but it doesn't work for most people. And in, in the people who feel left behind or left out or, uh, you know, uh, disaffected by the empty promises of the modern world, there is the generation of a load of anger. And that's a product of liberal democracy with its capitalist logics and modernity. And Mishra ties together all of the, you know, all the terrorist activity in America, which is almost entirely white men, and the, the terrorist activity that we see around the world. And their writings are all the same. And it's, and in all of them, there's this desire to dominate women. And there's this desire to sort of overcome their fears of their own softness. And to my mind, that's a huge part of this discussion. The celebration in uh, conservative Christian circles, the celebration of masculinity, and um, the I've heard this over the last uh, 40 years many times, 
the decrying of the softness of the American church or the feminization of Christian men. That's, that is not the voice of the New Testament. That's the voice of our liberal democratic culture. So somebody like Beth Allison Barr is bang on the nose when she says that patriarchy is actually cultural accommodation, even though um, patriarchalists lob that accusation at uh, egalitarians, that they've sort of succumbed to some kind of feminist agenda. Um, Patriarchy is basically the product of the modern world, Um, the product of liberal democracy with its capitalist logic. And to my mind, patriarchy is utter worldliness. And it is a, a dynamic of oppression that has infected evangelicalism. And that's not a good thing. I know that's a complicated point, and I think I might draw that out more sometime down the road. But I think that's that's been a fascinating thing to observe. The creation of angry white men, angry young men especially, um, who feel disaffected and left behind and grow angry when women advance and when women um, have opportunities to participate fully in culture just like men have always been able to do. White men, should say. Um, I wanted to say something about um, complementarians or patriarchalists who mean well. Um, like there are a lot of people who are genuinely convinced and convicted that uh, patriarchy or complementarianism is biblical teaching and they're good people and they mean well and all that. Um, they just feel that the biblical texts say this. Um and I want to say that that's great, good people and all the rest. Uh, but one of the ideologies or one of the moves, uh, one of the one of the assumptions that sort of uh, runs through evangelicalism as an impulse is a um, is sort of a checkout into motive. That is to say, well, so and so is sincere. Uh, their motives are pure. They really believe this, and I I don't. I have no idea what to make of that. It does, it, I know um, I know a lot of good people who mean well and are simply wrong. I don't know I don't know what someone's motives matter when church cultures are harming people. And I, I just I feel like I don't give a rat's patoot about um, how well-meaning a person is or they're really convicted that scripture teaches this. I don't care. Do the hard work of informing your imagination, and um, I think it's, or you know, churches have to sort of remain in places where they're going to suffer the consequences of being oppressive cultures. I think it's really terrible, but I don't, I don't, I don't like that move that is often made. That's part of the sentimentality of evangelicalism. Well, they mean well, or they're sincere. It doesn't matter. The question is, how do we all, how do churches? organize themselves so that they are communities of flourishing under the Lordship of Christ. That's the question. So that everybody feels validated and valued and welcomed and embraced and loved and honored. That's the question. The question is not um, what my motivations are in my being wrong and being an agent of the fostering of a culture of oppression and exclusion. Anyway, I just think that that checkout move is uh, some serious BS. Um, 
Okay, lastly, this is just the last thing I'll say, especially to people like uh, Tiffany and to others and, and other dear people that I know uh, who are who've been strong voices in my life, other dear women, um, people that I value highly uh, for um, contributions they've made to my own thinking, and people who are uh, in ministry and certainly certainly have had a fruitful ministry in my life. Um, this is just a sort of a final hateful word. And, and by hateful, I mean, I just, I hate that this is the case. I hate that this is true. Uh, because this is not, this is not something that I need to do. I don't need to develop thick skin when it comes to participating in any kind of a ministry context or in the context in which I uh, do my teaching. My seminary is sort of oriented and wired to make me as a white man feel completely welcome and normal doing what I do. But for women, for people of color, they sort of have to justify their place. And that is an indication that our institution, like many evangelical institutions, is dominated and oriented. It was created by, upheld by, underwritten by whiteness. And that whiteness has to be exposed and, and the whiteness and maleness needs to be exposed and gotten rid of. Um, but it just bums me out. It's 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 a it's a terrible thing. It's a it's a hateful thing that women um, are in a place where they have to develop thick skin, and and I don't have to do that. And so I'm glad um, for Tiffany's request, which I take as sort of a provocation to to say something about this. But just to say, um, unfortunately, it's the case that there are always going to be angry men and angry white men out there saying demeaning things about women and citing Bible passages. That sucks. That's horrible. Unfortunately, women will be in the place of having to learn to tune them out. Sort of like, you know, America's approach to dealing with terrorists. Um, don't negotiate. And just like how, you know, America's campaign to rid the world of of the evil of terrorism has just created more terrorists. Um, you know, when older patriarchalists like John MacArthur or John Piper or Wayne Grudem, when they pass off the scene, there's just going to be more angry white men popping up on Twitter and saying the same things over and over. And uh, I think it's, you just have to learn to tune them out. Don't get distracted. Um, it's something that just seriously blows. And um, all I can say is I'm sorry. It's terrible. Don't pay attention to jackasses. I don't. Well, those are some thoughts. Tiffany, uh, again, like I said, this was an interesting week and just reflecting on that in the mornings, your question just made me wonder uh, about why I wouldn't say something. And um, when I sort of brought some possible thoughts together, uh, they came together. I don't know if they made any sense. I thought it was fruitful for my purposes. And when I do this podcast, that's really all I care about. As I said earlier, I'm standing here in my office looking out on an absolutely gorgeous day. And like Bono says, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.